Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mental Health Much, the podcast that talks about everything queer and mental health. And this week, we are continuing our conversation about loneliness. I am still with Dell. I am still with Mackenzie. Hello, both of you. Hi, Vincent. Hi, Vincent. How are you? I'm great. I'm really happy to meet with you two again. Pleasure. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Before we start, I received a new five-star review on the show between today and the last time we recorded by a person that I do not know or a person who did not pick their real name as their username. So thank you very much for the five-star review, Fred Irving, or whomever is the person behind this name. So last episode, we talked for so long about the two chapters that I split our talk into two episodes. Who knows if we're going to do that again today or not, but we might cover the chapter three, which is on the gay path of life, and chapter four, which is on internalized stigma and discrimination. So two pretty big topics to discuss. Let's start with chapter three. The chapter three I named The Gay Path of Life. Uh, maybe it could have a slightly different name, but mostly in this chapter... I talk about four things that I find pretty common in gay men's life or queer men's life that are maybe slightly different than for our straight counterpart and talk about these four themes. So uh, very quickly, these are having more freedom, parenting like or not parenting, moving like changing cities and the absence of role models in the queer community. So these are the four topics that I talk about in the book and that we're going to talk about here today. Let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about having more free time, which I describe in the book as often gay men. We have more freedom. Uh, we often live more downtown, have less commute, are not parents, or have also like the financial freedom of having a men's salary or even a two-men income salary which does lead to more freedom, but how sometimes in life more freedom and more free time does not equal more happiness. So what did you two think about this chapter? This is definitely something I I've thought about before and I've gone back and forth on, on like, I think growing up, there were very clear expectations from my family and my parents of like kind of how they saw my life. And I think after it came out and then I, kind of realized I'm going to be living my truth and kind of now having to navigate and rewrite what I want to do with my life, you know, in terms of kind of things I want to accomplish, how I want to be spending my free time, where I kind of saw my legacy, th those kinds of things. Yeah, there's definitely more freedom in terms of creating our own path. But I, I think I've definitely also met a lot of queer people who fill that freedom with so many things. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's a lot to unpack there. Those like high achieving queer people. And sometimes I've fallen into the, that bucket too, like right from high school. Yeah. Overachieving gay men is definitely a subcategories of gay men that I see a lot of. And uh, I guess I'm partly part of as well. 
Yeah, um, that's very relatable. I really liked when you discussed like the 1995 study that talks about like, if people are presented with more choices, then like, they're less likely to make a choice and like that choice paralysis that we experience. Mm -hmm. I feel really strongly like that's how I apply to a lot of things in my life. Like, when there's not a lot of structure and a lot of like tempting invitations to do things like social events or like hang out with these friends and those friends, I really want to do all of it. But then, yeah, I end up over committing myself and being spread way too thin. And yeah, I think ultimately sometimes I feel like I don't end up fully committing to any of it. If I commit too much to all of it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't end up investing in one thing if I'm always, like, on the next thing, right? Um, so, yeah, I think that that's definitely something that, like, as queer people, we experience and that I can relate with. And I end up feeling, like, more lonely for it. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting concept that more choices make people not as happy. And there's a book called The Paradox of Choice, that feels a little bit old school. Like part of it reads a little bit like an older man complaining that things were so much better back in the days when there were only three types of cereals and oh you didn't have to choose between more products. But there is something to say about having so many options all the time. And one of the examples I give, because I don't know, it feels so true to me, is going to an LCBO here in Ontario to buy alcohol and have, you know, rows and rows and rows of wine. And in my head, I'm like, please give me six bottles of wines to choose from. And I will like pick my favorite one between those six. I really don't need that many options. It just is so overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And even like the thing with like going to a restaurant and like always picking the same thing on the menu. I, I feel like it's just like my instinct to go with something that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. If I'm presented with so many choices, right? I think the example you used in this particular section with the study done by Professor Anger with the jams and then the 24 jams versus just having four jams and how they actually ended up making more of a sale. That was just such an easy way to sort of understand that concept of paradox of choice. Like more choices actually makes us make less decisions mm -hmm. as opposed to focusing and, and making more concrete decisions. And I think that there's, there's a lot there too, like in terms of the, the human relationships, especially like queer relationships that translates over. Yeah. How do you think Dale, this links to more feelings of loneliness in our communities? There's a specific, um, character and they oh my gosh uh anyways it doesn't matter about the name i'm sure you'll drop the name but basically he was trying to be nice to everyone on social media and then he was carrying on so many conversations he kind of got overwhelmed mm -hmm. and then there was just like uh, no interest to meet and then you know he was just being nice for the sake of being nice you know i've definitely fallen into that trap before i'm like let's be default friends with everyone which is just not possible even if you're extroverted and i don't think you should necessarily be friends with everyone it's just not healthy for you mm -hmm. treat people with respect yes i just don't think you need to force yourself to be friends with everyone yeah yeah and i think that's where 
like, you know, not that we should always be like putting people on like a hierarchy, but I think you should examine which relationships are important to you and focus a different amount of time on those than you would with like a wider circle or a wider net, right? And I think like going back to what we were talking about in a previous episode about like different kinds of social hangouts, you could have like a larger event with more people from a wider social circle. Whereas if you have a best friend or romantic partner that you really want to like focus time on, then you can spend more one-on-one time with them. But you're not going to be able to spend one-on-one time with all of these people, right? Yeah. It's really tough to, if you said, put a hierarchy of people you want to hang out with. But if I put some people at number one and for them, I'm number three, then there's this sort of like weird disconnect. And it feels lonely because there are a lot of people to choose from. Uh, There's a full chapter dedicated to phones and dating apps and social media. But there is this idea when I open up a dating app that there are so many people on it. There's so many choices that people do feel a little bit expendable or interchangeable almost. I highlighted that section, especially living in a larger city. And, uh, you know, there's people coming in and out all the time, moving in and out, visiting, that it kind of gives this perception of endless choice. And you're like, you know what? I had fun on this particular interaction with this person, but it wasn't like everything I wanted. You know, let me just kind of move on to the next one. Whereas you might have sacrificed probably what could develop into like a pretty good relationship of whatever definition that you were trying to achieve, but you just didn't feel like putting the work because you feel like you're always searching for something better. I come back to something that you had, I can't remember what, what the context was maybe, but you had said Vincent to me before, like the point of the first date is to just determine if there will be a second date, you're not trying to plan your wedding. Yes. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm like fair. And that that's like kind of my mantra going to the first day. I'm like, I'm not trying to play my future together. Like do I like this person enough to want to see them again? Yeah. I, I love that. I always say that to everyone on the first date, people who are nervous. And I'm like, all you need to know is if you want a second date or not. And then you will have a successful first date because you will always know the answer to this question after a first date. Going back to more freedom, meaning more loneliness, I think there is something to say of like goal achieving. And we talked about gay men who are overachiever, but at some point in life, you sort of achieved the things you want to achieve. And I... I'm now in my late 30s and a lot of the people I know are around that age. And for overachieving people, late 30s is a moment where they hit that wall where they kind of have done not everything they wanted, but they have the house. Maybe they have the husband. Maybe they have the career. And then they don't know what is the next thing that they need to accomplish. And that leaves a lot of time for stress and anxiety and discomfort and loneliness, of course. So this part about achieving goals and, you know, being goal oriented, what it made me think about was kind of this idea that we are always in search of like an end state goal, which is like, 
once we achieve this end state, then we'll finally have achieved happiness. Mm-hmm. And I think we place different values on that end state. It could be like for some of these characters, like being in a relationship, how that will like solve everything. But I think for me, so when I came out as trans, people were like, when are you going to transition or have you transitioned or whatever? And I think that kind of gave me like freedom to explore this idea of transition on a wider scale and to realize that I may never be done transitioning. So I may never like reach this end state goal that is supposedly the ideal. And so with that, I kind of gained more freedom to like explore myself as like an ever-changing being, right? And how that was kind of like a weight off my shoulders to not have to worry about reaching this end state. So yeah, that part just like resonated with me. And I was like, I think we need to focus more on the present and like feeling at ease with how we are rather than like, what is the next goal? I really felt that like overachieving gay stereotype because in my own personal experience in high school, I like did everything. I was like joining all the clubs, all that. One, because I could then be like, I'm so busy. Like, that's why I'm not dating a girl. I'm like, so busy. <laughs> or like, I was just so busy that like, I didn't have to think about, like, I could like run away from thinking about that I was gay. Like, and actually, now that I think about it in student government, like the people that I ended up finding out were queer in my grade. So many of them were in student government. And I was like, wow, we're, we were all just like addicted to the power mm-hmm. of like, and power and influence when navigating high school. But even I remember talking to a friend and, and he's quite well accomplished. And his motivating factor was to be like, I guess because people in his life had told him, like, you'll never live a normal life being a queer person. He's from an immigrant background. And his achievements that he did and kind of, like, the stable life he built for himself in Toronto was, like, an F you to them. Like, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Like, look how far I've come. And that kind of had motivated them to just be like, you know, I may not have lived, like, a traditional life, but look at still what I accomplished. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so common. I... Like I respond to this too, like as a young gay man, the instinct that even well-meaning adults in my life had was that I would not be happy or that my life would be so difficult. And I do have this, I need to prove to them that I'm as good, even though I'm not following the same path as them. I think it's my friend and colleague, Rick, who talks about validation in gay, bi, and queer men, and who keeps saying something that really resonates with me and saying that because when we're young, we're not validating for who we are, young queer people get validation for what they do. And that's why, like, this overachieving student council full of queer people, because in order to get validation as a young teenager, Queer people do things instead of just existing and getting validation from the TV shows they watch or those conversations about girlfriend that everyone else is having. And so doing things become this overcompensation thing. And it's hard to stop as an adult because it was so useful for our mental health when we were kids. That's so fascinating. And yeah, I can totally see how that's a thing. I think in general, like humans want to do things and have something that they can have as their own and, you know, 
But yeah, queer people especially must have that extra need to be validated in what they do. Mm -hmm. And good on us for for doing stuff <laughs> yeah we're pretty good at doing stuff yeah we're good at it go us go us also dale what you said earlier when you're like i'm too busy i was like oh my god too busy to be straight <laughs> <laughs> no too busy to, to think about being gay <laughs> mm-hmm. oh my god i could not possibly have a girlfriend i have so many things to do so mom academics i have you know all that stuff i'm worrying about university i can't I can't be distracted <laughs> too much work it's a little time i was very distracted <laughs> so that was the first part of this chapter on how having more free time and more freedom can actually lead to more loneliness there is also the example of sanjay who just works and then come back home and doesn't know how to fill his evenings. And it's a good segue to the second part of this chapter, which is about parenting, where there are fewer gay men and queer men who are parents. And regardless what we think of this choice, parenting takes up a lot of time and leaves less space for loneliness. There are probably a ton of difficult feelings that comes with parenting that I don't have to deal with, but I'm not sure that loneliness would be one of those. And parenting also organizes people's social life around their kids' activities. Like Saturday, we have hockey, and then I will go and hang out with the other hockey parents. So I do want to push back a little bit on this idea, because I was thinking, like, I think there's still a lot of space to be lonely for parents and queer parents as well. I'm thinking like my mother, like growing up, even though like my father was present, he wasn't always present. And I think there definitely were times that like she felt lonely in her marriage. Yeah. And my partner is a gay dad. And I think he also does experience some loneliness sometimes. Cause I think like even in parenting, like even though you have a child and you have like presumably people around you frequently, I think that like going back to the idea that we have different types of gas tanks mm-hmm. that like these social relationships aren't necessarily going to fill the gas tanks that need filling. And in fact, parenting, I think, leaves less time to fill those tanks than you might have otherwise. So, yeah, I do appreciate the idea that like, you know, gay men tend to be parents less often and that parenting offers more like structure and social relationships. But I think there's still definitely room for loneliness in parenting, I think. Yeah, I believe that too. And especially feeling unsupported as a parent would feel so overwhelming. Uh, Whereas like, if I'm just lonely on a Friday night, (laughs) like it's not the end of the world. I'm not like unsupported having to take care financially, emotionally, socially, physically of kids. So I really don't want to diminish the role of parents. I think the less parenting is linked to like the more free time and more freedom of the argument prior to it. Uh, And uh, kudos to all those people who are parents because it looks like a lot of work. And uh, that's why my theory was that like, if I'm so busy taking care of kids, like I wonder how much time I have to think about my loneliness. But maybe I do. Maybe I'm just like <laughs> completely isolated. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, for me, this section isn't one that I really have ever considered. I mean, I don't envision myself ever being a parent, but I see like my friend group is kind of entering that phase where they are going to be parents. So I think for me, these are things that I'm going to like keep in mind to like, oh, I hope that they're doing okay and, and check in on them. You know, I think I remember once hanging out w- with a friend who was a new mother and there was a conversation we we're having where she accidentally used like baby talk. And then she was like, I'm sorry, I've just spent three days like with just me and the baby. So I'm like, it's weird, like talking to you like a normal adult. It's it's nice. So yeah, I, I get it. That need mm-hmm. is still there. Maybe too. And it's not in the chapter and maybe like this chapter is not particularly well written or relevant, but what you're describing Dale as like, as a gay man and seeing all my straight friends being parents and not me could maybe create that sense of loneliness or that sense of missing out because I'm not partaking in the same life path or gender norms that are offered to me since I was a kid. Um, So maybe there is that to mention too. I'm curious, Mackenzie, if you can talk about... And maybe on behalf of your partner, like being a queer parent, I think things are really changing and evolving because it's more and more accepted to be a queer parent. But I feel like I have heard from queer parents that they don't fully fit in the gay scene, at least, or gay community anymore, and yet feel a bit one step removed from the straight community, even though like having kids is the same thing. And there is this isolation there that I think is probably very real uh, for those queer men or queer people who decide to have kids. Yes, absolutely. I think you like hit the nail on the head because I think it can be like doubly isolating in the sense that if you're a gay dad, it can be isolating from the gay community that it aren't becoming parents because a lot of that revolves around going out, nightlife, you know, And then also on the other side of the token, it can be isolating from the straight community as well. Like if you're going to bring your kids to like programming, for example, where like other parents will be present. Yes, typically like that's a great space to like meet new friends, meet new people, whatever. But if all of those people are cis heteronormative, then it's hard to connect with them as well. Right. And like, My partner has mentioned at times that, like, he'll go to things with his toddler and he'll be the only dad present. Mm. And it'll be, like, a room full of moms, which is interesting because, it I mean, it's still annoying that this is still the norm, right? That, like, women are expected to do a lot of the child rearing. So my partner then has to, like intentionally try to to befriend queer gay dads mm-hmm. to try to fill that gap right and so like yeah they now have a network of other queer parents who like will come to events and stuff they have that space where they can like be themselves around and be super queer and gay and you know raise their babies in a gender creative way that isn't going to be judged by the cis heteronormative community at large. Right. Um, But yeah, it it can be challenging for sure. I wonder if you relate to the part, I think Tan in the book describes that they were hurt that their parents were friend with the parents of the kids that bullied them when they were younger. I definitely had some of that experience in my family 
my parents, you know, were asking us what we wanted to do as activities, but there were some activities that were really stronghold of, you know, my family and I have two older sisters. You two are both only child. So maybe there was more flexibility. But for me, when my two older sisters and my mom and my dad all liked the same activity, I had better liked it as well and follow. And it was weird to see that the kids that were my peers, sometimes they would bully me. But at the parents level, like our parents were friends, which I've never really said out loud, but was a bit weird to have that. You know, the the people who bullied me at school, my parents didn't know their parents and they didn't really care. But in that sport, it was a little bit different because it was such a tight-knitted group for the parents. Yeah, that's interesting. That wasn't my experience with sports. I don't think, like, my parents were pretty easy with letting me choose and, Mm -hmm. you know, what sports and what activities I wanted to get into. And if I wasn't into it, they were okay with it. Must be nice to be an only child. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was definitely a benefit. It sounds like, yeah, your experience was like, your family was like, okay, what is the like most expedient group activity that we can do (laughs) as a group that, you know, will engage everyone, maybe not on the same levels, but... I'm yeah. sorry that you're, you had that experience. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Vincent, you're going to hate my answer as well. Was basically <laughs> like, my parents were like, you have a bunch of friends that are trying the sport. Would you like to try it as well? And I did. If I liked it, like I enjoyed swimming. So I continued swimming for a long time. Mm-hmm. In that sense, like I was never forced. On one hand, I do get it if you're, you know, you have three children and it's like, oh, 66%. Like, they like to do it. Sorry, 33%. Uh, Well, also because my parents really like that activity, too. So it was like four out of five. Like, I was really outnumbered. (laughs) Sorry. So then it's 80% to 20%. So in general, like, they were pretty open to being like, if you want to try this activity, try it. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it. But in terms of... So my parents had a friend group and and everyone had children. I mean, for the most part, we got along, but there were times where, especially kind of like when they were teenagers and then like the younger ones, they would like tease us and stuff like that. They were like hesitant to maybe like push back on them to be like, hey, like they don't like that, do that because they didn't want to like ruin that friendship or kind of like when I didn't love like all the traditionally masculine things that the other older boys liked, you know, they, they never like bullied me per se, but they're like, come on, like do it. And I was like, I don't want to do it. And my parents were like, just go. Cause everyone's going to be there. Mm-hmm. So all this to say that maybe parenting or the absence of parenting can definitely be something that creates more loneliness within our community. Maybe that's where I came from. Like, Maybe you're less bored when you have kids because so much of your time is taken by keeping this little human alive and then sleeping as much as you can while they're sleeping. Yeah, yeah, that did occur to me. I was like, oh yeah, this the idea that like having more free time because someone is not parenting would probably lead mm-hmm. to boredom. And as we know from last episode... <laughs> basically interchangeable with loneliness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Same word. Yeah. <laughs> the other part following that is about moving. And I think this is a really 
interesting part of gay men's life that I have thought a lot about how moving or like not having children, for example, having more money, having more freedom gives gay men the illusion that they are very mobile and that they can, you know, put everything in a U-Haul and move to another city or even like another continent. And that ultimately your problems move with you and it does not solve everything. But I kept thinking that often the first move that queer men do is very successful. So going from the suburbs or from their small town to a bigger town, that first move is really successful. So it leaves the idea in the brain that moving will solve all the problems. Because I for sure experienced this at 17, 18, going from my small town to Montreal and really finding a place where I belong. And it was not quite the same going from Montreal to Toronto. Yeah, I definitely related with that because I did that move from, you know, relatively small town East Coast to, you know, Toronto. And I did feel that it was a pretty successful move. And I think, like you said, like that kind of left the idea in my mind that like, oh, moving could potentially work again. And yeah, it's still something that is ever present. I'm still feeling like, do I want to move? Do I want to stay in Toronto? Like, where's my life leading me? And I think part of me is like, really does want to move. But also another part of me knows that, like you mentioned, it's not going to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And they're just going to follow me and I'm going to end up recreating the same social structures that I was trying to get rid of in the first place. So yeah, I think I'm starting to accept that maybe I can create a home here and like I can find stability and, you know, it doesn't mean I can't travel or go visit places, but I need to let go of this idea that moving is going to fix anything. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> I felt like that you like were in my mind and you like put a lot of kind of my experience to paper definitely again like it's confirmation bias like of, of what Mackenzie and you already said I moved from the suburbs to like downtown maybe I'm like a 15 minute walk to kind of the village like the heart of the gay community in Toronto and honestly it's been like extraordinarily like I've had so 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 many benefits from it I feel like my life is so different fully based my queerness and it's like definitely thriving here but you know that romantic notion of like uh, like a fresh start like I've had friends being like oh you've not had success dating like just try moving to another city like <laughs> and I'm like oh I don't think it's necessarily so easy I mean obviously I'm sure we've all had that experience like we go to a new city and then you're like oh my god I'm getting so much attention which you've also mentioned in the chapter and you're like am I hot here like am I everything that people want here that kind of thing like I feel like someone jokingly was like They went to like a slightly smaller city and they're like, I'm a Toronto six, but like a Calgary nine, you know, something like that. No offense, Calgary. I'm just using it as an example. <laughs> so many issues with that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that kind of sentiment. But yeah, like I've, I've definitely toyed with that idea, especially now since I work fully remote and maybe I go into the office like once every four months. And actually, in fact, my manager, she lived like for a few months somewhere else. 
So every time we would have like our one-on-one call, she'd be like, oh, I'm in X city in Europe today. I'm in this town in Europe. And I'm like, oh, wow. She's like, yeah, you should do it too. I'm like, is that going to solve all my problems or am I just pushing it down the road three months? (laughs) So this is a meaningful section of the chapter. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, traveling and relocating are not quite the same, but I know early in the pandemic, I was thinking, do I go back to Montreal or do I stay in Toronto? And I was in that limbo for quite a while before deciding, no, I'm going to stay in Toronto. And I was so enmeshed in my own thoughts about do I leave or do I stay that I was not fully thinking about the impact that it had on my friends. The idea that like, oh, I'm thinking of almost like abandoning you. And this is not what I was saying, but this is kind of how it was received by people. And I used the example with Greg in the book and him saying, oh, all the Toronto gays are this and that. And people being like, well, you know that I'm a Toronto gay, so you're talking about me right now and about my friends. And why would I spend any time and energy creating connections with someone who keeps criticizing the city that I live in and the people who live in that city and who is constantly like one step away from just leaving? And that really like affects relationships, I think. And in order to have a 10-year relationship with someone, you have to have known someone for 10 years. You cannot move somewhere and make a new best friend. It might feel like a really solid relationship, but it is not a 10-year relationship yet because you've literally just met that person. That example you just gave, this year I, I kind of didn't explore friendship because they were saying things like that, uh, like full essays on Instagram about how terrible Toronto is, how like there's there's no one like interesting, blah, 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 whatever, X, Y, Z reasons. And I was like, it was hard not to take that personally because we had been hanging out in a friend group for a while. Um, and fine, like, you know, you may be potentially not in Toronto and now that they've moved to a different city, so they're having a much better experience. But I didn't consider like what you just said, how it could be alienating to people. You're like, oh, you're moving because you're not having a life in Toronto. I'm part of your life here. So mm-hmm. that also like can make your friends feel a sense of like loneliness or disconnection. Yeah. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, it really made me think about like my desire to move and how I talk about it with people. Just because like, I, I know I've mentioned it to my partner And, you know, just the fact that, like, I've thought about moving outside of Toronto. And, yeah, I guess it hadn't really occurred to me how alienating that could be. And to be clear, like, my partner has a full family, like, outside of his relationship with me. So, like, asking him to move with me feels like a lot. But at the same time, telling him that I want to move out of the city feels like in retrospect, like, yeah, a little bit dismissive, I guess, of the relationship and really made me like rethink how I think about moving while having these relationships and friendships. Right. When I sat down to write that part, I did not think that it would make me think about, cause I've done it. (laughs) So In my head, I was like, oh, it's a little bit different because my family is still around Montreal and Montreal is always going to be part of my life, even if I relocate in Toronto. 
and the opposite is not true. Like there is a part of me that knows that if I move back to Montreal, Toronto is not necessarily going to be a huge part of my future because I don't have roots there the same way that I have with my blood family back in Quebec. Yeah, that's fair. So when I moved to Toronto, I did so for school. And shortly after I finished school, I briefly moved back to New Brunswick. And it was for a few different reasons. Mostly, I was offered a job that fell through. But I was there for all of three weeks before (laughs) deciding to move back to Toronto. And I think part of it was that I, I realized after I'd moved back that like, I was in Toronto for like, you know, four, five years, and I had created all these like, social relationships, and I suddenly decided to like, abandon them. And I just I felt so lonely mm-hmm. when I moved back home, like more so than when I first moved to Toronto. And yeah, I think I just realized that like, I had kind of started to set my roots in the ground here in Toronto, metaphorically speaking. And yeah, and then I realized I think I I just need to go back and foster that relationship, that tree. Yeah. The last words about that is about those gay men who did not move. And I realized that I'm super biased and my book is super biased towards queer men who decide to leave their small town to move to Toronto. And the character Kenneth in the book is saying like, people always feel like I've missed some sort of like milestone in life because my parents are from Toronto and I've never significantly moved to a bigger city. And that has not been my experience, of course, but I've heard that. And there are a ton of queer men who live in their hometown or in their suburbs, and they're not interested in living in Toronto. And it could be isolating the fact that there's like this exodus towards Toronto of all other queer men in their hometown or in their suburbs. Yeah. I mean, in reading that, I realized I don't know anybody who grew up in Toronto, like any queer people who grew up in Toronto, everyone grew up either in a different province or in a different part of Ontario or outside of the Toronto area and then came to Toronto or were born internationally and then moved to Toronto later in their life, um, that immigrant kind of experience. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's so interesting. Like I can't think of anyone that grew up in Toronto. It's weird. Yeah, I think I've met like all of two people <laughs> who grew up in Toronto and each time I'm like, oh, you're a unicorn. Yeah. Like, mm, <laughs> yeah. You don't exist. <laughs> Yeah, it must be kind of alienating for people to be like, no, I am actually from here. Like, my parents are in North York. Be like, what? (laughs) How did that happen for you? That's controversial. Some people would be like, that's not really Toronto. (laughs) Post-amalgamation Toronto. (laughs) I know one straight person that was born and grew up in Toronto, but queer people, they just don't exist in Toronto until adulthood, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's the gay agenda. Yeah. And finally, after moving, the last part of this chapter is about elder role model. And this is a section of the book that I always get very emotional when I work on and when I reread because, God, it's so sad. (laughs) It is just so sad that effectively, if you're hearing these lines and you're 
Gaiman, you are part of the first handful of generations of Gaiman who are going to be able to grow older and age. And it's a very lonely, difficult path to just be the first few generations to grow older. We don't have any role models because of the AIDS crisis and because of blatant homophobia and that it was a danger to come out, but also because of the AIDS crisis and I talk in the writing about uh, a colleague like Tim McCaskill, who I find so interesting, who's lived through so many things, who was part of the body politics, which was a newspaper here in Toronto. And I'm, I'm like, what I would not give to have a conversation with the other cool queer men who were his friends and his peers and his lovers, you know, in the 80s and early 90s were no longer among us. So that is a very lonely path to be the first generation to age. I think about the fact that like what few queer elders we do have, how isolated and lonely they can be, you know, given that we really like, I think Toronto has one long-term care home for elders that is specifically intended for 2SLGBT people, but everyone else who is in uh, like, you know, regular long-term care don't have that and like probably don't have that community. Right. Yeah. I just imagine that that must be so lonely and like to then feel even more isolated if you're, if you know, not going out as much because again, like queer communities often revolve around going out drinking. So if you're, you know, staying home, then must be super lonely. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm a little embarrassed to say, like, in a lot of my experiences in kind of like the queer events and, and spaces that I navigate, I don't really interact with queer elders. Um, and that's something that I, I would like to change. But like, everything I know about, you know, kind of growing up prior to my own generation, I kind of know through like, media or whatever I've read, you know, and, and I'm sure those firsthand experiences would just help me appreciate kind of what I have even more. I think I had maybe one conversation, you know, with this gentleman who in Toronto, he marched during the, uh, shortly after the bathhouse raids. Mm -hmm. That was very fascinating. I hadn't even thought about kind of like that happening, the harassment that police um, perpetuated against the queer community here, how they fought back. It was really inspiring how he during the the 80s how he had a scare where he thought he potentially might have been exposed to HIV and in those days uh it took like six seven weeks to get a result and the the amount of trauma that the maybe the generation just older than us three have like either the trauma of having gone through losing all of these friends or having gone through that level of homophobia that even just our generation had it quite a lot easier, even though it was always easy, it was easier. The fact that, yeah, sometimes in our community, we don't fully respect <laughs> older gay men, but the phrase in the book when Colin says to Kenneth, like, oh, my HIV is like a lot older than you, so you should respect it more, right? But it's true. It's it's very true. Some people have lived with HIV for now almost easily 40 years, and that experience is not nothing. 
And maybe the younger generation of gay, bi, and queer men don't understand why we still talk about HIV the way we do right now, because they've always known PrEP. They've always known U equals U. They don't understand that it still has an impact on them. You do also in the chapter mention like how intimidating it can be. If So if you're a queer older person and not on social media, maybe not navigating in-person spaces, it can be really isolating on not maybe understanding fully kind of maybe language that we used to talk about those kinds of things. And, you know, they don't want to offend. So they like don't even try or maybe they don't navigate technology as quickly, that kind of thing. So, you know, I think more grace towards the older generation is needed. Totally. And like, we need more intentional spaces to, to create intergenerational links. I think like there's Buddies Theater had, they called the Youth Elders Project, where they like, they brought together like people from different generations to have these conversations and create these links. And I think that's like, so important because we really don't have the mechanisms now for that where i think like in cis hetero communities i feel like this might be going back to like family and parenting we're able to like pass down stories right through family and these blood ties and i think that like queer people given how we have so few like role models and elders and those links tend to be like severed because of the way that we create relationships we don't get to like have those stories passed down to us so yeah i think it's super important to to try to get those and like you know retain those histories because i think we are we are kind of a culture even though we don't have the same like blood ties that we might have with like our close blood family, it's still kind of a a community and a culture that, you know, we're linked together by stories and a shared history. Yeah. I think one thing that makes things murky with intergenerational hangouts is the fact that the gay scene has thought every young gay man that hanging out with other gay people equals sex. And it goes both ways, right? It also thought that to the generation older than us and to the generation younger than us. And so to create those spaces that are not sexual, where we can take that out, like not that people cannot have sex intergenerationally, but it is a barrier into having those connections. The fact that our communities and our scenes have always told us the way you connect with other gay men is through sexuality. Otherwise, there's not much there. So that was the chapter three on the gay men path of life. Uh, For people who are listening at home, you will uh, take a break now because we've talked for a really long time and this is probably going to be a whole episode. So You will hear the rest of our conversation next time. And for you, Dale and Mackenzie, we will keep talking and keep recording on chapter four, which is internalized stigma and discrimination. So ciao, everyone. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.